good story for you this month Draycott Diaries listeners welcome back one and all I've just got in just pouring myself a cup of coffee as we speak because I've been having a wonderful chat with my friend John Connor who lives here in the village we first met when he was doing volunteering for driving to the hospital and he kindly took me to several of my appointments As you can imagine, I was slightly gloomy at that stage when I realised I was going blind. But anyway, the nice thing is, John has always remained a friend, as his wife Jo has. And I always knew that John had been a commercial pilot, uh, certainly in the second half of his career. What I hadn't realised until I'd just come back from this chat was that his desire... Uh, let's say, to to fly, I started, I mean, as a kid, he was making model aircraft, not very well, and that's by his own admission, not mine. Started applying, I think, to be a pilot as early as sort of 15, 16, and was lucky enough to get a scholarship, which started him on his career as a, an RAF cadet. And then, of course, he got his PPL, which is his private pilot's licence, which allows him to fly anywhere. And his career really started taking off in the RAF actual. So I just want to give you a confession before we start this. I'm terrified of flying. I always have been. I love it, but I'm terrified of it. I'm always absolutely convinced I'm that one statistic that, you know, they say, oh, you're more likely to be kicked to death by a donkey than crash, or it's one in a million. You're more likely to win the lottery three times over than die in air crash. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. I always think I am that one statistic. So let's get back into my chat with John. Gosh, you're going to discover some extraordinary things. Have you ever flown at a thousand miles an hour at a very low level when somebody was doing exactly the same coming in the other direction? Well, listen out for later in the programme. So we pick up with John as he's just telling me about his early life in the RAF. So your early career, they had you earmarked for quite an important aircraft, didn't they? Can you tell us a bit about that? When you go through your initial training, which is a nine-month course, at the end of that, you're then classified as to which field of the Air Force you're best suited to. Fast jets, transports, helicopters. And I was fortunate to be fast jets. So that's got to be the icing on the cake, hasn't it, for some people? Uh, it's surprising enough. Some people like helicopters. I do. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> but in those days, there was quite limited um, jobs available in the helicopter world. Most of it was search and rescue. Oh, was it? Yes, because the army had their own helicopters, the navy had their own helicopters, and in those days, our big chinooks weren't around. So no, it was more search and rescue. But even so, fast jets, that's got to be exciting for a young man to know that they're going to be Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very. And what was the aircraft that was marked for you? At the the end of my advanced flying training, I was, yes, earmarked for the Phantom, which had only just come into service. It came into service. Did that come from America? Basically, yes, it's American aircraft. Yeah. Uh, And the British in there... Wisdom decided to put a Rolls-Royce engine into it as opposed to the American engine that came in, which delayed it for two years, of course. And from memory, the Phantom is um, 
Well, the 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 um, the title sums up the look of the aircraft quite nicely, doesn't it? I mean, it does look quite new age, even looking at it now. It does. It's an old airplane. It was built as a test flight type aircraft. It was never built intentionally for what it was used, like most aircraft in those days. Designed in the 50s. And what was it primarily used for? Primarily for what we called ground attack, defence of forces on the ground. Fire rockets, drop bombs, and we used to strap a great big cannon underneath it and fire 20 millimetre bullets out of it. Wow, so it's, it's quite a, um, a lethal weapon. Yes, yeah, 6,000 rounds a minute. They used to have 1,500 rounds in the gun, so you only had 15 seconds worth of fire. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, John, with that, did you actually ever see action as such? I mean, you're carrying some pretty lethal stuff with you there. Not in the ground attack mode. Later on, when the Phantom converted to air defence duties... I was out in Cyprus and we did some protection of buccaneers flying in and out of Lebanon. Were you ever aware that you were in danger at those times? Um, you're aware that you're in a, you could be in a hostile environment, yes. Okay. Yes. So your career, I mean, we're covering a lot in 22 years, but certainly, I mean, you've got a went up the ranks and became more and more senior. But towards the end, you were actually instructing people to fly Phantoms, is that right? Yes, yes. Actually, I, that was after 10 years of flying. I then went to the operational conversion unit at RAF Coningsby, where everyone learnt to fly the Phantom. Uh, and I taught there for three and a half years. Wow. And... I mean, again, I'm going to ask a similar question to your PPL, but this is a slightly different aircraft now because you trained in a chipmunk. Now you're in a, <laughs> in a Phantom, which is a very different machine. Can you again remember the sort of... I mean, obviously you were sitting presumably... Well, I know when you were training, are you in the front seat or the back seat? The instructor sits in the back seat. That's right. Can you remember the first time you went up? I can't, honestly, No. That's no, so disappointing. No. no. <laughs> the, I've done so many flights in the Phantom that it's difficult to remember the first one, quite honestly. Of course, of course. Yeah. But I kind of am afraid I go into Top Gun mode. I mean, yes. did you guys feel like, you know, you were king of the bunch? Um, we knew we were of more the elite side, quite honestly, yes. Uh, and the RAF has always very much in the higher echelon of the world's air forces and I think still is and you know could you ever go into the pub and um, if you sort of were interested in somebody let it you know let it slip that you were a jet pilot and did that indeed give you some additional skills most of the pubs you went into were called the officers' messes. <laughs> you know, we used to go in every Friday night, so we didn't go to no, external pubs very often. <laughs> oh, that's disappointing as well. <laughs> Sorry. OK, well, now, I know that you're an incredibly safe pilot and that when I was doing some pre-research, it was really difficult to find anything that ever went wrong because you're such a good pilot. But I do know that as an instructor, you had two or three fairly scary incidents when you were... 
teaching rookie pilots, is that right? Yes, yes, there were a couple of incidences that I can recall. Which was the most dramatic? The most dramatic, I, my main instruction tech, um, job was teaching combat. And you always start off combat coming head on to each other. We're in the Phantom again. In the Phantom, yeah, yes. Yeah. You have one Phantom versus another Phantom. Okay. And you come on head on. And we try and encourage them to go as close as possible within reason to the other aircraft so there's no room for manoeuvring to the advantage of the other aircraft. And we teach them to pass on the right-hand side. So we are going head on, 1,000 miles an hour towards each other. 1,000 miles, 1, miles an hour. And the student in front started to turn left. And I thought, okay, he's... He's taken this tight, and then I realised he'd gone too far left, and the other aircraft was coming straight for us. So I thought, if I'm alive in five seconds, I'm all right. And I was. So what did happen? He went down the wrong side. Of no, the other no, I realised that, yeah. but I mean, did they just literally miss each other by inches? Uh, there was, a, I would say, 100 feet. Which is very close in Very Ayrton. close. Very, very close, yes. Wow. And, and did you have sort of frank words with this young pilot? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And there was another time you were telling me, um, was it something to do with... <laughs> you were going along the runway and um, you hadn't even taken off this stage and you were up at a speed of about 150 yeah. miles. This was a night, a very hot night, and what you do is you teach them to do circuits and you, you come into land, you let the aircraft physically touch down and then you put the power on and go around again. Which is when you see all the fire going out the back. Well, you don't, that is the, the fire you refer to called reheat is only used normally on the first takeoff when the aircraft's heavy. Oh, okay. When you come back from a, a sortie, the aircraft's pretty light. Oh, and okay. so it normally behaves perfectly all right in full cold power, as we called it, without the reheat, which the student pilot selected, and we rolled down the runway, and we rolled down the runway, and we rolled down the runway, and we weren't accelerating. The end of the runway was coming up, and I was screaming at him to select reheat, because from the back seat, you couldn't physically select reheat, because okay. you had to rock the throttles outboard and then push them forward. Right. Yes, my hands was close to the ejection seat when you eventually selected reheat. And my question to you is, how do ejection seats work when you... Because one always thinks the ejection seats when you're up in the air, and in this case, you're still on the ground. Yeah. So how would that work? They would the work... ejection seat just throw you to the side? No, ejection seats these days, uh, what we call zero, zero. Zero speed, zero height. It will throw you into the air sufficient for the canopy, parachute to open and land you safely on the ground. But in that case, you didn't have to use them. I didn't that night. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yes, that is what I mean. <laughs> But it did cross my mind. And lastly, because I know it's just such a good story, tell me about that time again when you were training. So you, I mean, you weren't training, you were training a rookie pilot. You were coming towards a hill somewhere yes. like, I mean, for, for want of a better person, somewhere like Nyland Hill. Well, it's, it, it's a, like a ridge, like, okay. like the Mendips, yeah, really, yeah, 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 yeah. coming up over the levels of the Mendips. Yeah. And we used to teach the people, instead of climbing up, 
so that you arrived at the top of the hill still climbing, yeah. which means you'd be then very visible to any forces the other side. You climbed up beforehand, and to stop the aircraft from physically going up, you rolled it inverted and then pulled down. So you actually went over the top of the ridge inverted. Well, you're looking, you're with your hand, John. Does that mean upside down? Upside down, down right, yes, okay. literally upside down. Unfortunately, on the hill we chose, there was an aeroplane coming the other way doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> Which, of course, we didn't see. And that was in the days when low-level flying was, there was areas open to low flying and there wasn't a one-way system. But, uh, the one-way system did evolve. Okay. So that was nobody's fault? No, such. nobody's fault. It was just aviation risk. But how do you, you know, when you're upside down going at that kind of speed, how mm. do you even know that happened? <laughs> uh, well, you don't until you go... And then you go... Oh, what, what was, was that? that? <laughs> was it a seagull or was it in fact another one? Yes. Uh, oh, wow. Yes. Oh, well, I'm still looking at you, John, so something must have gone right in the end because it oh, obviously yes. got back. Yes. Oh, what a fantastic... Now, I know, because I've known you a long time, that you ended up in commercial flying. Yes. Um, as a captain, obviously. Yes. Um, tell us how that transition happened, if you would. We had an office where there's three of us in it, and we were getting slightly disenchanted with what was going on in the Air Force. Okay. It was getting more political than practical. So we decided we'd leave. And one of the chaps says, there's plenty of jobs outside in commercial aviation. And all you've got to do is this course and that course. And you get a license. And Bob's your uncle. You get a job. Which is what I did. And you quite easily got a job, did you? Oh, yes. I was offered four jobs. Were you? Yes. And that was with... Uh... Well, I, well, I had a job with uh, BA offered me. Jumbos, a company offered me a job flying in and out of Berlin. Air Europe offered me a job. That uh, was the one you ultimately took? Which you, yes, I took it because the majority of the guys in Air Europe were all my mates in the Air Force. <laughs> you go into the crew room and all your mates were sitting there. Oh. So. But that had not a great ending, did it? In the no, world. unfortunately, Air Europe went bust as indeed 97% of holiday-type commercial companies do and have done over the years. And therefore, there was a little bit of a, a kind of transition point, wasn't there, in the way that you, even for a while, was taking civilian jobs like double glazing and oh, working yes, on petrol yes. forecourts. You weren't proud. Uh, no, I am say I've queued up outside the, the job centre once and I swore I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> But I was fortunate enough to, yes, I worked in a garage forecourt. I managed a garage forecourt. Um, I've sold double glazing. I had two children at boarding school, so I had to find money mm. to pay for that. And fortunate because while I was in the Air Force flying the Phantom, I was selected to do aerobatics in the Phantom. Really? I did that for two years. Wow. You, you meet the school of aerobatics and you make lots of mates outside and one of the chaps came up to me and offered me a job flying a stomp. Now a stomp is well, fixed wing but it's got the double, what would you call that? Plane. Biplane. Yes. Two wings, biplane. Yeah, that's right. Just, biplane, that's yes, the word. Just like uh, the dear old tiger moth. That's right. But that's the stomp right. is French. 
It's great names. And uh, yes. So you used to fly the team, if I remember, was a, a Bell helicopter. Yes. Uh, then there was another smaller. An extra. An yes. extra aircraft. And then there were four lady parachutists. Yes. And they jumped out of the Bell helicopter. Yes. And you in this other plane did wacky ups and downs and yes. turns arounds. Yes. Gosh, that must have been exciting. It was very exciting. Uh, you have to get a special license to do it. You're allowed, I was allowed to fly down to 50 feet above the ground. I could go inverted at 50 feet. Although, Upside down at 50 But not feet. recommended in a stomp. Oh, I was going to do it straight <laughs> after we finished this. <laughs> <laughs> was that as exciting as being a oh, jet pilot? Oh, yes. I think all modes of what I've done, even when I ended up commercial, uh, it was quite exciting at times. Yeah. So you have never, you know, ever since you were a little boy, you've never lost that thrill of flying? No, no, no. It's And every, I've been so fortunate to do all the, the a, different aspects of aviation. Small, big, large, fast, slow. Well, that does take us into, because I know there were various sort of, you know, as all our lives, twists and turns, but you, you eventually came to join Thomas Cook... Yes. Where you flew for how many years? I flew for 14 years. And you were flying the 737? 757 and the 320. 320 and 321s, yes. So you were, I mean, you know, numbers specifically, it doesn't matter, but these planes were carrying up to about two or 300 people, weren't they? Yes, yes. Wow, that's quite a... Now, I, again, John, I know, because we talked about it before, We I couldn't eke any danger stories out of you seemed to me the most dangerous things were the passengers is that right oh every time every time it's the passengers that cause all the problems <laughs> occasionally you've got an aircraft problem but i had far more problems with passengers is that mainly because they were going on holiday and yes they get very excited they arrive early at the airport and they go into the bar consume numerous pints because you were saying you'd arrive sometimes at sort of five or six o'clock in the morning and they'd already be in the bar. Yes, oh yes. And you were thinking, oh goodness me, yes. this is going to be a... Yes. And have you had to eject people from the flight? Oh yes, yes, yes. Thrown them off before we got airborne. Now the bits I know that you can't tell us, but I wondered if you'd give us any little background thing. One always imagines that, you know, the air crew and cabin crew all having a lovely time in all sorts of different yes. ways. Is it true? Oh yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Is it what stays on the flight, stays uh, on the flight? Generally, but you know, the girls would always, uh, sometimes they'd give you what were they called word of the day. <laughs> so on all your PAs, you had to include this word. Um, example, moist, <laughs> hairy. So on all your PAs, you had to include that word. <laughs> now I'm always going to be listening out. OK, well, this brings me neatly to, I've got a little quick fire before we go on to our, our next section. A little quick fire. OK, I call it the ding-dong bell. I think it's called the call bell. With call the bell, yes, yes. OK, does it mean any of these? Does it mean... Pilot to stewards or stewards, I'd like a cup of tea. Does it mean pilot to cabin crew, I'm going for a wee? Or does it mean pilot to cabin crew, we're all going to die? None of the above. Because <laughs> that's what it means to me. Usually the last one. Mm, the call bells are usually set off by the passengers putting, pushing the buttons above the seats. 
That's what so it's nothing to do with pilot giving no. messages no. to. So no. if something was a little awry, yes. would you go over the PA system, call the head of cabin crew to come to you, and then you tell we, them? We chat would about do, it. but we use code words. Okay, tell so, us a code word. No, I'm not. Uh, I don't think it'd be suitable if I said that. What a shame! This is where you see. This is where Drake Darius no. could have got a scoop. Okay, but now I'm going to worry because when you start saying, you know, oh, we're having a lovely flight, we're just flying over the Alps here, I'm going to think the Alps means it's the code oh, word no, for a war no, going to die. It's, it's usually we require the presence of the senior in the flight deck as soon as possible. Well, that's going to Because be things are going on, so we haven't got time to have a conversation on the PA. <laughs> that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah. And another question always fascinates me is because internet is so... A prevalent now. Can you get internet when you're flying? I mean, when you can pilots, now. do you use it? Yes, yes. It's do you used. Google or do you use it for navigation? GPS, Global Positioning System, which the Americans uh, developed for the cruise missiles. Oh, okay. And most, all modern aircraft have GPS now, which gives you far more accurate navigation. Uh, it enables air traffic to control aircraft so you can... For instance, across the Atlantic, we used to have a, a separation of 50 miles between aircraft. Now you know that the aircraft can be where they say they are. They reduced it to 25. Oh, okay. So you doubled overnight the amount because of traffic of the going across the, the North Atlantic, yes. So no, GPS, you can use position, navigation, and indeed flying into airports. Whereas previously you had things called ILS, which was a ground-based station that gave the signal to the aircraft, and the aircraft followed the signal all the way down to the ground. And now GPS is just as good, and you can the aircraft can land within two metres. Because it, that's automatic computer landing, is that yes, right? Yes, yes. So you always take off as pilots, you always do the takeoff. Correct. But the plane can land on automatic oh, Yes, yes, it can do, and in thick fog... Obviously, it does. It's incredible. Yes. But the last question on commercial flight is the other thing that scares me to death is turbulence. I mean, as soon as it even just, you know, there's a mile check, I'm, I'm almost in the brace position already. Mm. Um, how much turbulence can an aircraft take these days? Enormous, enormous. I mean, you could go through a really bad storm. Oh, and yes. Be fine. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But if it flipped over, well, it wouldn't flip over. Uh, the wings are designed to bend up and down to give you a more comfortable ride, basically. The okay. wings go up and down, the fuselage stays level. Whereas airplanes built 60 years ago were a lot more robust and you bounced up and down with the wings, which okay. made it even more un uncomfortable for you. And presumably now with the navigation tools that you have, you can navigate a little bit around turbulence, can you? They're you use radar. Okay. To detect the weather ahead, yes. You try and avoid it if at all possible. Okay. But, and uh, does that, is that air traffic control and the two of you in partnership doing that? Oh, very much so, yes. If sometimes over southern England there's heavy thunderstorms, you know, it gets a bit uh, difficult with air traffic to, <laughs> because you tell air traffic where you are going to avoid and they have to comply as much as they can. Okay. Uh, I've never had air traffic tell me, no, you can't. 
Yes, yes, of course you can go around it. Okay, okay. Oh, that's made me feel, I think, a bit better. Mm. I think, but mind you, my next flight I'll come back and, and ask you if any of the code words we used. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you went to the maximum age because the mandatory age of retiring is 65. 65, yes, public transport. You had a very lovely last flight. Your wife Jo was telling me you were flanked, when you came to land, you were flanked by two fire engines who were firing a cascade of water, water across the, the plane, top, like yes. an arch. Yes, fantastic. And everybody came out to uh, Bristol, yes, because uh, that was your main, yes, uh, your main thing to see. Well, that must have been wonderful. It was. It was yes, tearful. Was it? Yes. You did get quite emotional, did oh, you? Oh yes. And I should say that yeah. the passengers had been warned. Oh yes, because otherwise they might have been a bit alarmed that water was being yes. thrown yes. at the plane. And they were told it was my last flight as well. So, oh, yeah. oh, John. So then we went into a bit of a fallow land. Well, you know, it may not have been, but you have five years. And, and if when we've talked about it together as friends, you've said, you know, you didn't think you would probably ever want to fly again. Yes. But something changed your mind, and that is because of something that's not far from where we're sitting now. Yes. The, well, there is the gliding site up on the top of the hills and there. And what is that officially called? The, the site is called Halesland. Is it? Yes. But, the, but the name of the club, is it the Mendic? Oh, Mendic Gliding Club, yeah. yes. But the, the, the ground there is called Halesland because a, a family called Hale owned it originally, which is why it's called Halesland. And it was on top of the slope there, yes, and I had the grandchildren staying and I thought I'd take them up to see the gliders. And that was the start of it. And you are now very much, you have in fact shares in a glider of your own. Yes, I have a, a share in a, a lovely discus glider, which I thoroughly enjoy flying. We have to, at this stage, I think, do some comparisons between gliding and um, the, the life you've had flying jets. The obvious one is that you're flying around 35,000 feet. I'm just pulling out a figure mm. in your commercial jets. Uh, and in gliding, you're probably going to hundreds of feet, not thousands of feet. Yes, yes, it'd be nice if we got to thousands. But <laughs> and you have no flight controller telling you things. Correct. So, and you have no engine. Correct. So those are the obvious differences. Yes. But what, what, tell me about your sense as a, as a pilot flying gliders now, and how, how does that feel? Well, the, all aircraft fly the same. Uh, whether it's got an engine or not, the controls are exactly the same. They do exactly the same thing. So it was obviously very easy for me just to switch over to flying the glider. But of course, the glider is then very much dependent on the weather conditions. And you've got to find lift. Otherwise, there's only one way you're going to go. That's down. And if you start from a thousand feet, at the end of a winch, you doesn't take long. Yeah, let's just go to that winch because there's two types of way of being airborne, aren't there? As they, there's you can be taxied up by a biplane, or you can go up on the winch, which yes. is naught to seventy five in five seconds. Yes, just about. Yes, which is quite a shock to yes, the system. It's, yes, it's quite fast. Yeah, so presumably people who've been flying a, a little bit more go up on the winch, or do you just have to? It, it all depends on the day. Um, sometimes we don't have the tow available to take the glider airborne. Sometimes the crosswind is too strong. So we can't do it, so you have to do the winch. 
preferably people who haven't flown at all before. Yes, you do give them an aero tow, and then they have sort of 25, 20, 25 minutes airborne to start getting a feel of how to fly a glider. Whereas on the winch, if it's not a good day, you'll have five minutes, which isn't enough to teach anybody anything, really. No, you're going to get a shorter time. But you would have thought, wouldn't you, not having an engine, you know, and all of that sort of stuff, it's less that could happen. But there have to be things that go wrong, even with gliding. So what what would be something that would go wrong with gliding things that go wrong with gliding uh on the winch is you, you have a a winch failure or a, a launch failure either due to the cable snapping which does very very occasionally do i haven't known the actual engine of the winch pack up but that is a it's something we practice sure, sure. Uh, and something is called self-induced where you pull back too hard on the stick and you put such a strain on the cable we get something called a weak link in there which is designed to break before it breaks the glider uh, and it's quite easy actually to break that weak link yourself is it possible that for example you know when i'm up on the hill i see the gliders coming in i mean is it possible with a glider that you haven't given yourself enough height or you've got disorientated and therefore you're not coming in at the right uh, altitude to come back into yes. the effort. oh yes so would basically land elsewhere and yes. does that happen oh yes yes has that happened recently it's, yes quite a few times it does uh, um, fortunately is a field just before we normally land uh, and I can recollect three aircraft landing in that field and where might they land on the levels or on a... it has done in the past people landed on the levels uh, in the days it, someone's landed on the recreational field in Draycott before when it was and then bigger. it's just really more of an annoyance because you've got to basically get a trailer down there and pick correct them up, yes them up. yes and imagine a bit of a red face too oh yes we have a prize every year called the red ball face <laughs> And I mean, I think we shouldn't lose sight. You can't see much at 35,000 feet, really, can you, except tops of mountains, whereas I'm imagining here, you know, you're close to the ground, you can see exactly what's going on. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely. It's very, very peaceful. It's so quiet up there. You get a bit of a whistle of the wind come past sometimes, but it's you can see for a long, long way. Uh, yes, it's beautiful, peaceful and lovely. John, we must wrap it up and let you go. And I'm just so grateful for you spending the time with me today. And thank you so much for telling us and, and being very candid about your career. And, and, and I think you've given me confidence to, to, to fly now um, in the cabin without panicking endlessly. Good, good. <laughs> thank you, John. Enjoy. You're welcome. Thanks, John, again. You... <laughs> The question is, isn't it, everybody, do I feel more confident about flying? The truth is yes, but will I be listening out for code words now? I think the answer to that is a very big yes. So I've just replaced one fear with another. No, I, I, I'll be absolutely fine. And uh, as I said, when I heard John's story, I think... Um, I think it uh, it just suddenly makes you realise the immensity of uh, what goes on up in the air. So I did say I'd mention anybody who wants to get involved and would like to know a little bit more. The website is mendipgliding, one word, dot co dot uk. 
mendipgliding.co.uk. Uh, there's a contact page there and you can leave an email and all of that sort of stuff. John did say at the moment it's just open on a Thursday, Saturday and Sunday. I guess that's through the winter. But I know it is the aim of the club um, when the weather improves to, to do it on the Friday as well. So that will be Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But keep in contact with them through the, um, through the website. Thank you very much indeed. So, Jeff Varney, a wonderful editor, and recorded this programme with me. A big thank you to you and to all the team on Draycott Diaries. I was the voice, I was Tiggy, and I shall look forward to speaking to you all again in about a month's time. Okay, stay well and safe.